Hey, all right, this is awesome. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Showtime's new series, Billions. Another way I could have said that is by my new series, Billions. This is a show that David Levine, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and I created. And David Levine and I are the showrunners of this show. We spent years thinking about it, writing it. We spent this whole past year making the show. Paul Giamatti, Damian Lewis, Maggie Siff, Malin Ackerman, and... It is a show about power and influence with some intrigue, some humor, and incredible acting. And you can see it starting January 17th at 10 p.m., only on Showtime. Plus, we got a special housekeeping announcement. Mom and Dad are fighting. Slate's parenting podcast is having a live show later this month. It's going to be in Brooklyn at the Bell House on Tuesday, January 26th. We'll be having a special guest, poet and first lady of New York, Sherlane McRae. To get tickets, head on over to slate.com slash live. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a special day for me on the show, and not just because I got to advertise my series Billions at the top of it, which starts January 17th at 10 p.m., as I said, only on Showtime. But it's a really special day because this is my our hundredth episode of the show. And I say our advisedly because it's your show as much as it's my show. This right from the beginning has been a conversation uh, between the people who listen and then reach out to me and my guests and me. And I'm beyond moved and touched by the fact that so many of you listen so closely and care so much about the stuff that we talk about each episode of the show. Today's show features two of my absolute favorite directors. Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden have made movies. Each movie they've made is a movie I love, would make the top 10 list each year. I say that when, I, when they're here, but um, it's true. And I have to say that, you know, it's an incredibly personal thing doing this podcast in the way that we do it. As you know, if you're a listener, I only have people on that fascinate me who I find really compelling and whose story features things that I think I'm really curious about and that I think will have some value to whomever listens. And it's such a privilege to be able to do this, to engage in these conversations. And uh, it takes work to prepare and to think about. And while we were making billions, it was really hard to find the mental space. But I kept doing it because I wanted to sit and have these conversations, and I kept doing it because after every episode, I get letters from you, themomentbk at gmail.com, and these letters really communicate to me that you are finding something that's important to you here, and I can't thank you enough. I hate when people use the word humbled. I'm humbled by this because I think in our culture, when people say humbled, they mean um, my ego got really big. So I'm not humbled by it, but I am touched by it. And so thank you for being here for all hundred of these episodes. And I hope we get to do another hundred. Special thanks to Jason DeLeon, who is my producer, who does an incredible amount of lead time uh, research and organizes and coordinates all this and uh, is a great uh, partner to have. And, And, you know, out of the first hundred only lost one episode. So uh, we salute Jason for that. And uh, here are Ryan and Anna. 
Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today, my guests are Ryan Flack and Anna Bowden. Anna Bowden. Um, we were just talking about how to pronounce that name. And um, you guys are filmmakers who made some of my favorite movies. I remember exactly the theater I went to with Amy, my wife, when I saw Half Nelson. We did. And um, it was one of those movies I just walked around in a daze afterwards. And then I was just in for your career. And um, Sugar is an incredible movie. And then this year, you guys made Mississippi Grind, which is absolutely on my top five films of the year. And um, Dave Levine and I were lucky enough that you directed the second to last episode of Billions, our series this year, which was a real highlight for us. So thanks for that, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much. You're embarrassing me. That was a great, great <laughs> intro. It's all downhill from here. Well, no, it's true. I mean, look, you know, um, the way that I pick guests on the show, and I only made a mistake once very early on, and I haven't since, is I have to be really interested in something that they've done or something about who they are. Otherwise, I don't do it. And the truth is the specificity of your vision as artists, I have found it really compelling because your films aren't the same, but there are things about all of your films, like your love of film. Mm-hmm that you feel like in every frame. Um, mm. So I, w- I want to go back to the b- beginning, though, and I really do this with two people, but I want you both to answer if you can. Um, should we go out of the room? Yeah, you should <laughs> go out of the room. Well, I want to talk about how you b- work together because it was really great getting to watch you on the set, how you collaborate. And I, I want to talk about that because I think people can take a lot from it. Um, but I'll start with you, Anna. When did you like know you wanted to make movies? I... I'm not sure the answer to that. I, the, I knew I loved movies. I loved photography. I loved literature when I was, you know, in high school. But I always suspected that I would never be a creator and that I would either maybe be a film critic or a trailer editor because I loved watching movie trailers or the person who gets to choose what movies get played in the theater. I thought that would be the best job ever. Like the programmer of the local indie cinema or just like whatever? Yeah, you know, the landmark had just come to Boston. um, Where you grew up. Where I grew up. And, And so I thought being the person who watches all the movies and then gets to choose what plays at the landmark. I've since learned that it probably doesn't work quite like that, but I really thought there was one person who got to watch every movie and decide what gets played. And I thought that would be my job. Did you tell anybody this wild show business dream to, <laughs> to be the person the who decides well. how, how long to extend, uh, like, true lies or something? Like, what? what? <laughs> no, but you're not talking about first-run movies. Are you talking about, like, no, she's a, like, the a la- calendar, like the landmark? Really? You're not yeah. talking about, like, a calendar of no, months of programming? No, wow, no. She's saying, not even. <laughs> no, dude. She's saying, like, like, really, she wanted, you know, how long to program... My first real job was like at, at the movie theater, the um, the Landmark Theater in Waltham, Massachusetts, and Buffalo '66 was playing that summer, and I was like, somebody watched this movie, or in my head, somebody watched this movie and was like, oh, we're gonna play it at, at this theater, and I remember going to see the trailer for it like 15 times a day, just every time that trailer would play in any one of the screens, I would like have to go in and check it out, even if I was supposed to be selling popcorn. Anyway. So that does not answer your question. When did I know I wanted to make movies? At first I thought maybe documentaries, and I kind of explored that because I don't know. But did, like, the real artist thing seem impossible? I mean, you were mm-hmm. you were watching. It's funny that the Buffalo 66 story, most people, the Buffalo 66 story would be, well, if that guy can make, Vincent Gallo can make, <laughs> <laughs> can make movies. 
<laughs> but, but yours is like so practical. Were you raised by very practical? Like, was it uh, the thing like in a home you were in that you couldn't uh, think of yourself as an artist? Like, because. Um, I mean, my parents had fairly practical jobs. My mom was a therapist and my dad was a professor. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It was something about the idea of putting myself out in that way I wasn't totally comfortable with. Even when I did photography and I was um, in high school, I remember I like skipped the last day of class where we had to actually show our work. Oh, because you were shy to like, expose shy to yourself? Show, yeah. And then I met Ryan, and I think it was actually, I met Ryan at the same time that I was trying to explore what it would be like to be in production. To work in production. Yeah, which was taking a summer class at NYU, because I went to Columbia for film studies, and they didn't have an undergraduate film production class. So I took spent the summer at NYU taking a film production class because I felt like I needed to push myself to at least explore it. I met Ryan that summer, and... And there was something about, you know, both meeting him and pushing myself to explore it in this way that, you know, made it feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more attainable. And we'll get back to the moment that, that, that you guys met. But, but Ryan, what was your, what was your story? Um, I guess if the Warriors were good those years, maybe, <laughs> maybe you would have had that to watch. That's right. That's right. You grew up in Oakland. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of... Um, you ever read that Bill Simmons piece, How to Annoy a Fan Base in 60 Easy Steps? I love referring current Warriors fans to that era, which basically spans my whole life. Yeah, because years. Rick Barry, you were born after I Rick Barry. I was born Barry. in 76. The so that, previous he, he championship was, was 74, 75. That's that's when he was on the cover of SI with the Superman. He was on the cover of SI wearing like a Superman I don't know, uh, I don't thing know. when I was like uh-huh. nine yeah. in 75. Okay, all right. So, yeah, you were born right after Yeah, that. so a lot of misery as a Warriors fan. There was time to watch movies. But in terms of wanting to make them, there was, I think, it was there was this period between Do the Right Thing and Goodfellas where I was just a fan of movies. And it was always been like E.T., Back to the Future, like all that Star Wars, just pop, popular popcorn entertainment. And that's why I went to the movies. That's why most of us went to the movies. But something happened when I saw Do the Right Thing in the theater that just clicked and I said, whoa, what is this thing that, that just happened? Who made this? Why did they do this to me? Like, I took it very personal. Like, what are they, why are they doing this to me? Yeah, and, then, and then a few years later with Goodfellas where I'm like, okay, something weird is happening here. I need to go back and see who these guys are, what they made. It was pre-internet, so I couldn't just Google these guys on my phone. You had to like, go to the library and get like the thick Leonard Malton book, you know? Yeah. Like, look up who the names were and realize they had a body of work. I mean, less so Spike Lee then, but certainly Martin Scorsese. You mean you, Spike, because he was on TV as Mars Blackman in the commercials, you understood who he was. Well, he had only made a few movies prior to Do the Right Thing. So I couldn't go, I could only go back and see a few of them. And right. then, of course, there was the, the Jordan commercials. But my, no, my mind is blown. And Jason, who's our, my producer on the show, showed me this article about Do the Right Thing just a few minutes ago. And you. Oh, yeah. But huh? I don't know if you, I, you know, She's Got to Have It was basically like that movie for me. Oh, no way. Yeah. We never yeah. talked about this. Yeah. I was in, there were a couple of movies I grew up watching, like First Blood, you know, was like the, a movie that Matt, like those were the movies that I would go see. And uh, because where I grew up, like there wasn't an art theater. I didn't know about art movies. I, it was like, oh, even like um, certain movies that had a little bit of that Deer Hunter, which was an art movie, or Apocalypse, like I didn't understand what those were. They were they were entertainments that just made, disturbed me. They made me... But in college, I went and saw, within a short period of time, because of the way release patterns worked then, even though these movies were released a little bit apart, I saw She's Gotta Have It and Raising Arizona within a couple of months. Uh-huh. 
And I saw She's Gotta Have It three nights in a row. Whoa. Wow. But everything changed. Like, the world went like, uh-huh. what the fuck? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I love that that happened for you with Do the Right Thing. Like, just seeing Spike's vision. Because I saw that opening night because he was my favorite. Like, I couldn't. And I remember walking out of the, the same thing. Like, walking out of that theater with Do the Right Thing going like, oh, you can use movies for this whole other purpose or thing. But so. Right. But, but you were still, a kid. Those though, are like, studio movies, right? That, yeah, I was a kid. She's got to have over 13. Do the Right Thing. Right. No, I'm talking about for the first. So for Do the Right Thing and Goodfellas, right? For me, those were like big movies. And I still didn't really see those as something that like a normal kid could do. That didn't feel like a job I could do. But similar to what you're talking about, because. She's Gotta Have It was such a lo-fi movie. Yes. It felt like you could do that. And for me, that actual awakening was at the UC Theater in Berkeley, which was a movie house with a big screen that had a calendar that came out that had one of those calendars that programmed three months like of film double form. features. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I started getting into those, and I just picked randomly once a double feature of Stranger Than Paradise and Slacker. Right. And I'm like 15, I'm like 14 or 15 years old, and I see those movies. And now, all of a sudden, now I'm like, oh, this is something people can do. This is something right. that... Jim Jar- between Jim mm-hmm. Jarmusch and Link Ladder. Exactly. Those felt like low-budget movies that you can grab a camera and tell a story. But had you thought of yourself as an... Like you, Anna, you clearly didn't think of yourself as an artist. Or if you did, it was like a very private, quiet mm-hmm, mm-hmm. idea, right? Yeah. But did you think of yourself as someone who could be an artist? I didn't really. It wasn't... I, there was some kind of weird awakening. I don't know what it was. I was a In watching geek. those movies. I loved those big movies. I loved the studio movies, right? And so I always was kind of like a film culture person, but it was never about, hey, I can tell a story too. I have a story to tell. That wasn't really happening until I saw those movies, and I don't know why that clicked in me. But they stirred something, and you, yeah. were, you, a big re- you, you were a big reader. I was a reader, and I was a private writer, but what do you mean a private screen, writer? You know, I didn't I didn't you know, try to get people to read what I was writing, but I would write. You were like going full on Emily Dickinson? <laughs> <laughs> I would share it with my grandfather. <laughs> no, but so you wouldn't you wouldn't share your work. There were a couple pieces that I gave to, you know, my literary magazine at my school that got published. But I yeah, it was very I was very private about the stuff I did. Right. And when, when you, how old do you think you, like, when you saw those movies, you were still in high school? Do the Right Thing was... No, that was younger. I'm saying when you saw oh, yeah, the Jarmusch school. movie, yeah, yeah, you were in high school. school. Mm-hmm. And so then, what sort of steps did you start to take? Did you start tell? did you tell people, like, oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker? It started to occur to me that that was something I wanted to explore, at least. I wanted to give it a shot, whatever that meant. I had no idea what it meant to give it a shot, but it just felt like these are cool stories told in interesting ways and worth just giving it a shot, you know? And so I got a camera. I won a radio contest on uh, the local radio station. I won $1,000. How? During Christmas one year. How? And spent it on a camera. This is its own story. I don't know what we want to talk about this. Sure. Have you told it a lot, many times? I've, no, I've never, never been heard told. this story. I've what happened? Yeah, of course years. you're going to tell it. So there, I think I'm a freshman in high school. There's a radio contest that's happening where they play a song in the morning during the morning commute. The next time they play this, usually during the evening commute, the same song, you've got to call in and be caller 107, right? So, for instance, I'm getting ready to go to school in the morning, and I hear them say, this is the song of the day. Call back later. Well, next time you hear this song, be caller 107. And you can win. Yeah. So it's I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, Michael Jackson, right? So it just enters my head. I go to school. I'm like, all right, well, I'll come home from school, and I'll turn on the radio and do my homework to it, and if it plays again, I'll just call up. I'd never done this before, by the way, but just because I'd happened to hear the song in the morning, I thought, hey, why not? It comes on again, like 4 or 5, five o'clock. I start doing the redial thing, 
right? Your color 37, try again. Your color 89, try again. And so, you know, it's also it's often really busy. So I'm, I get the rare chance. But you're doing it. You're I'm, going, I'm doing the you're redial. Going. My mom walks in the door and I have this panic attack that, oh, I'm, I'm too young. I'm like 14 years old. I'm not old enough. If I do win to accept the money, I just go into this like, ah, whatever. It rings again and I just hand her the phone. She's literally walked through the door. <laughs> She's like, what's going on? I'm like, just answer it, see what happens. And they're like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, getting rid- they're basically saying to, to tell her the song. Tell the and I'm song. like, I'm, t- I'm basically whispering her the name of the song. And she just says the name of it. And they announce that she's won $1,000, which she, of course, gives to me. Because what 1000 really meant something, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I used like 500 of it to buy a video camera. And then I start messing around with telling videos. Oh, I love that. <laughs> the worst prank someone played on me was like, I was, I was definitely something I've never told because I haven't thought of it since then. I was like eight, and there was this radio station in New York, 99X, and I listened to it. I care, music was all I cared about at that age, really young, and uh, Elton John was coming to town or something, and he was like my everything, my hero, and all I cared about in the world was Elton John. And the thing was, if you answered your phone, 99X is my radio station when they called, you would win. <laughs> and like this older person in the neighborhood, this older friend of mine had been like, um, I heard they're calling around, along, and basically I stayed home for days and then That's answered brutal. that way, and then he told me I won. And it was all a lie. That's brutal. <laughs> and so I was just, anytime someone would call my house, 99X is my radio station. And like, that's cruel. That's also like a really a... cruel thing to do for a radio, like just to drum up, you know. Uh, yes, it was horrible. But I'm glad it worked out for you. Yeah. That's the important. I didn't get to go see Elton, but it worked later I did. But it worked for you. I, I used that video camera. And do you start. remember what you started to make? Just little goofy things. I did like a slacker-esque story where one story like led them to another story. And Who would you use for these films? Just friends in school. And when you started doing it, did it make sense to you? It was fun. I had no idea what I was doing. I was half editing it in the camera, you know, right. like not realizing sure. like you you don't press pause on the tape until you give yourself a little leeway, right? I was pausing, pre- pressing pause where the cut should be. You were be. doing in-camera cuts. Exactly. It, and it made no sense. And it made Like it, you were making a cavalry movie in 1928, <laughs> you know? Where, it was right? horrible They're... later on when I was trying to edit and had no room on either end of those cuts, but... Uh, it was fun. It was it's fun. really funny that you mentioned Slacker because that was my first attempt at creating a video story also in high school. I watched Slacker and uh, me and my best friend, Alice Schmidt, <laughs> we decided to do our senior English paper like thesis on Slacker and Richard Linklater. And instead of writing a paper, we convinced them that we should make a video. And we called it Exile in Newtonville. <laughs> Because we were Liz Fair song, Fair, yeah. Liz Fair fans, and we lived in Newtonville, and it was like kind of a slacker story about our our lives and our friends' lives. Yeah, I, you I flipped it the way Liz did Exile on Main Street. You guys flipped the perspective. <laughs> no, so it was these women telling the story. And did you go see her when she did the Exile show a few years ago? I did. Me yeah. too. At the place on the West Side. Yeah, wait, like where the was Jane it? Hotel or something? Oh, no, no, I saw her someplace else. She was playing. I think she was playing the Bowery Ballroom, wasn't she? Maybe she also. She yeah. she did this. You did you? I went. I it went was too. incredible. It was night. so cool. It was like all people my age for once. And going older, to show. your age and, and older. And older. <laughs> yeah, because I was there. Dave and I went, and we were singing along to every word from that incredible album. It's a great album. There's a place for one of those songs in that, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> you guys haven't used. Have you used any of her songs ever? No. no. She's promised to do this, the podcast. You can come that day if you want to get an autograph or something. (laughs) You can just sit in the corner when Liz is on the show. So um, you start doing this. Oh, wait, when you, and did you edit that? 
I edited it. We had like a TV studio in our public high school. And so we, we shot on um, SVHS tapes or maybe just VHS tapes. And it was like reel to reel editing. And how was it received? We were in different English classes. My English teacher gave me an A, and her English teacher gave her a C plus. Whoa! What? Yes, same exact project. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I didn't know this part of that. Uh, She must have been so bummed. (laughs) She was pretty bummed about it. Did you do most of the work? No, that had nothing to do with it. Just one of the teachers thought it was good, and the other one didn't. <laughs> Does that teacher know that you've gone on to, like, Thank prove goodness I'm sh- the one who got the A, right? It's true. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe she would have ended up. What happened to Schmidt? Is she... She's a social worker. But is still your friend? Still one of my best friends, yeah. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Billions, January 17th on Showtime. So, okay, look, uh, the ad copy they gave me says a host can ad-lib about the show. But I almost have too much to say about it. I will say that this has been the great, making Billions has been the great creative experience of my life doing, doing this, making movies and, and television. You have 12 episodes to tell this story and it allows you to try to do something novelistic and intense and it allows you to be as ambitious as you possibly can be. And I felt challenged Almost every day working on it, I felt like a failure, but in the best way. A failure because my ambitions for the show, Dave's ambitions for the show, were and are so high. And because I knew these actors were giving us everything that they had to deliver uh, and put across the show. And and I have to say, when I've watched back the episodes, as we've edited the episodes, as I've started to show them to people, I'm blown away by how much they work how much people like them. I mean, this is a show about power, about titans, about an epic battle of egos, and about these men and women who have a really clear idea of what's morally right and a real awareness of when they say, fuck that, and just do whatever they want to anyway. And I'm so thrilled that you're going to get to see the show. The series premieres January 17th at 10 p.m., only on Showtime. You can download the Showtime app to start your free trial now. Billions on Showtime, Jan 17, 10 p.m. So you, right, you start making these movies, and do you show them to people? Yeah, in school. As school projects? Yeah. Or just, you just... I'm trying to, I'm just pausing because I'm trying to remember because there was a few of them, and yeah, I think we had, like, during lunch one day, the student body was invited to come watch these student shorts. Maybe 30 people showed up, and... <laughs> I don't know really what... I don't remember the feedback so much. Do you remember getting better at it? Or were you not even thinking you know, in those terms? Weird. When I got... I, I kept playing around with it. I don't I don't remember consciously being better at it. But I remember, like, sticking it out for a little bit and playing with them, submitting one to NYU, getting into the film school there, and making a short there that was met with, you know, showing it to the, the students and feeling like there was a real positive feedback in a way that I hadn't really felt before. That let me know that, hey, I guess, you know, I could. it's worth trying another one at least until it sort of met with. It, it's funny how much I needed that kind of positive reinforcement to keep going. I don't know that I would have kept going had I not had some kind of confirmation that you mean when you were even when you were in film school yeah. in college, mm-hmm. if when you'd shown your films, but that's fascinating to me because. I still stuck like, it on an independent cinema, which there's so little positive feedback <laughs> for each time until, like, finally, you know. I, I felt like even in 
film school, this was always just like a little side project I was doing. This never felt like it was going to be a career. What did you imagine the career, your career would be? Maybe I could be an editor. Maybe I could do film programming like Anna suggested, but, you know, the calendar kind, not the True Lies version of, right. uh, of a cinema. But I, I feel I, terrible I picked a James Cameron movie, too. <laughs> as like the, I mean, Shit. you know, like, you know, one of the great directors who ever lived. But, you know, uh, what I meant. But, yes. But that's not really, that's not referenced in his canon of great films, right? True yes. Lies. You know, no, this is, he's got a great body of work. But Yeah, no, I would say that's probably... Probably the least regarded yeah. of it, right? Would you agree? That's probably the, do you, the least regarded of his films. We'd have to go. We'd have to look at a list right now. I mean, maybe I'm pretty sure that it is. Though entertaining. <laughs> and Grant Heslov is the bad guy. Oh, really? Grant Heslov, you know, who makes George Clooney's movies with him. Yeah. And writes them with him. Yeah, yeah. He's, the ba- he's like the bad guy's number one henchman is... Grant is I had no idea. We have to go back and watch it now. If you've ever, yeah, if you know him or have ever, like, met with him, it's great to watch him. He's playing, like, a Middle Eastern kind of terrorist guy and is, like, hanging off a building with a helicopter. But, you know, he's, <laughs> he's like, now this incredibly successful artist right. and you just see him really working so hard <laughs> to convey, like, evil, which is just... <laughs> Go watch. I want, and then I want your review of True Lies to see if we've been uncharitable. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna have to go back and uh, investigate about that. the picture. But wait, so you're saying though you needed? You thought maybe you'd be a programmer or do something like? I that. I don't know. I hadn't really thought it through. I was kind of thinking I wanted to do this filmmaking thing. It seemed like a real long shot. It seemed like the odds were stacked against anybody trying to make a movie. And I just kind of got lucky each step of the way, or at least I felt I was getting lucky. You know, I was getting feedback. That film that I just cited, little five minute short, got into Sundance. And that felt like, oh, okay, now it's gotten into, like, the sort of festival, you know, the, the domestic great place to show a movie. At least there's a little bit more validation there. Right. It's interesting that you needed that, or you feel like you needed that outside affirmation. Did you have a sense of that, too, where you, when you started making, like, because, you know, even when you tell your story, you, you did apply to a film studies program, mm-hmm. and then you did a summer thing that was a filmmaking thing. Uh-huh. I always had, this is... Very embarrassing, but my backup career in my mind, even when I, after Ryan and I met, which was around the time that, that Struggle, his five minute short, got into Sundance, I thought, you know, I could always go into accounting. <laughs> I was like, I'm good at math. Right. No. <laughs> so you just had no sort of like grand sense. Okay, but so I have to ask though, like, so you were a photographer. Did you have no sense that you saw the world? Not that accountants can't have see the world differently and all that stuff, but did you not have the sense that you saw certain aspects of the world differently than most people did? That you saw the world through like a, a certain kind of point of view, the point of view of, of someone with an artistic sensibility? No, I, I never I never thought about things that way and, and only really thought about point of view in the context of trying to create something or trying to make something and not outside of it. Not like, oh, I have to be a person that expresses that point of view or, um, but more like it was really the joy of doing it that made me feel like I wanted to pursue it rather than a feeling like this is what I need to be Right. Doing. Oh, oh, I'm special, so I should do this. It was exactly. more like I just love the process of doing this yes. thing. And it was really being in front of uh, doing – because the first time I did editing was at this NYU program where we were 
shooting on 16 millimeter and ed- editing on Steambacks. And um, that's the old film editing thing before, before that's linear editing before there was nonlinear editing, which is the uh, avid and, you're and physically final cutting cut. the film. You're actually cutting it. film. Right. And even though then nonlinear editing was available then, but you guys just weren't yeah, doing it. They, they weren't doing it yet. And it was the first time that I did nonlinear editing and had kind of control of all the pieces and was putting them together in a very, you know, visual and, I don't know, there was something that felt very right about it and very rhythmic and about tone and music and it all kind of came together in a way that made me feel like I'm comfortable doing this. I really enjoy doing this. And it was um, editing a documentary short film, actually, where I first that summer felt you're that. Um, it wasn't that summer. I think it oh, was Oh, later, saying non when you actually got to work yeah, on Avid exactly. or on Final, on Final Cut. You mean yeah. it clicked into you, oh, this is, I can actually express something about myself. Yeah. I'm, I'm in tune with this thing in a way that's different from other work I'm doing. Yeah, and I just wanted to make stuff so I could edit it into a story, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's funny. When we first met, and I was still thinking this director-writer thing may not work out, and being an editor was a job that felt like something that I could possibly do. Sure. So when we first met, we got the machine, we got the computer together, and we were shooting this short documentary that we were co-directing. We hadn't decided how this was going to work yet, so we were both doing everything. And I would sit down at the machine because I knew more at the time than she did about editing, and I would show her how it worked. This, you is, didn't, how, this yeah, is how you make this edit. Funny. I was playing Big Shot, right? She took it over almost immediately and started doing things in a way where I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, okay, you can do that, sure. <laughs> and I, I just sort of stepped back and realized that she, she did have a unique gift for cutting the images together, and I, I kind of stepped back and watched it. It was fun. And that must have been a great, you know, more, yeah, I mean, so your collaboration, let's talk about how did you, how did you actually meet? Like, what was the meet-cute that happened? <laughs> you, were, you were, like, taking that class that mm-hmm. you just described. And you were working at the editing desk. He was checking out supplies for the fil- film editing. Uh-huh. And we had, you were, so in Sight and Sound, the class that you were taking, you group up with four-person crews. So you were in, like, this four-person crew, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Who, a mutual, who a friend, another person taking that summer class, I also knew this woman, Wendy, who basically introduced, that's how we met, yeah. through Wendy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wendy introduced us and then kind of hooked me up to work as a PA on a student film that Ryan was directing, the, I mean, that Ryan was ADing the next semester. So you worked on a film together. Mm-hmm. And then were you guys romantic at that time? It was around that time. But you were, because I, I didn't know, because I don't know you guys as a couple. <laughs> yeah, right. But you were actually a couple we were, at one, in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. Right. And what was it? So other than like whatever the attraction, all that stuff, but what was it that you recognized in each other, do you think, that made you think, oh, this is someone that it makes sense to like collaborate, to really live this creative mm-hmm. life with? Do you, do you remember like obviously you knew, oh, she's a better editor than I am. That could be handy. But like what were the kind of – because I, like, people ask me similar questions sometimes about Dave and I, mm-hmm. I can – I understand now especially I can look back and know, oh – we, you know, like Rocky and Age, like we had gaps. You know, I knew, like, oh, I could figure out what these things are, kind of. But, like, what did you recognize in, in each Like, what did you recognize in, in Ryan? I think it, it it was just about talking about movies. And at first it was talking about other people's movies, and we would just watch a movie and then talk about it for hours and argue about it, but not in a nasty way, in, in a very constructive way, analyze it, get into it, talk about what we loved about it or what we didn't like about it. And then we started to be able to talk like that about 
our own things. And it kind of, we kind of stumbled into working together because I was um, doing a, this documentary short that Ryan mentioned. I was doing it for school. I was still in college. And I just started off asking him to help me out. You know, I would, I would hold the camera and he would hold the microphone. And, but it, just started to become more than that, you know, more than him holding the microphone. It was just You respected his opinion. And were you both watching you together on set, as I told you one night, was like mind-blowing to me because of how, like, gentle and respectful you are to one another. And it never feels put on. It, It feels like you genuinely kind of check in with each other, make sure the other's creative vision is being sort of, like, satisfied and it's like a really kind of a heightened respect. And I, I had this like all working teams work that way. Like our society would be more productive <laughs> and happier. And so was that in place kind of from the beginning? Is that just the, what, what your natures are? Are you that way with other people? Like how did that develop? Because it's unique. I think it's fair to say it was not always that way. And uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Could, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> we can tell, I mean, we probably shouldn't tell you some stories, but I mean, there were times when we were still figuring out. You should, we're on a podcast. <laughs> that's the whole deal. Yeah. I mean, I remember things being thrown. I mean, we would throw pencils. I remember an iPod got broken once because we, we both, we were both very passionate people. And I know we're very uh, calm often on the outside, and especially when we're on set with other people. And I think as we've gotten older, that actually has taken over as the predominant traits. But in Mm -hmm. the early days, when there were just young egos involved from both of us, they were fragile and sensitive and... And we both had short fuses. And it was, I, if you had told me we were still working together now during certain fights we had back then, I'd be pretty surprised. Like on Half Nelson Sugar in, in that area of your lives or before it that? It still happened there, but it was really in that short film period mm-hmm. before then. Well, we were, because you think every decision is like life or death. That's I right. I mean, every, but in a, and in a way they are. I mean, in a way they, they really do matter. So how do you subject, like how do you know when to subjugate it or when to, how do you make those decisions. Is Man, it? I wish like, we never sat down. I think we would sometimes have these moments of we need to talk about this, but that was rare. Like, I think we would say, hey, we need to figure out a way to do this because I think we both think that there's something working about this, but we can't have it go on like it went today. You know, we, we, when one of those blow ups You would. Happen. You would go and have that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely had that conversation. But it also evolved organically, I think, just out of I don't know what it was. It's just aging and, and realizing that we can't, it's not sustainable to be fighting like we were. And, I'm, and I think I'm overstating this fighting thing, yeah, too. I think, you know, how I think about it and how I remember it is, you know, remember somebody who didn't show up to, like, their photography class because they had to show their photographs the last class, you know. And now I'm sitting in a room with somebody and we're talking about ideas for a script. And it feels, every idea feels very personal, very vulnerable. And to even, you know, I'm, at first, I'm even censoring myself. Like, I'm not saying some things because I'm like, oh, that's stupid. He's going to think that's stupid. In the stupid. beginning, you mean. At the very beginning. And then finally, like, I get up the courage to actually say it out loud. And he, you know, says that he doesn't like the idea in whatever way that he's saying it. And it feels like... He's just totally crushed me. And so it, that's that's the kind of thing, at least from my perspective, that would cause these fights. Because then you would us. instead you wouldn't show the wound. You wouldn't be like, I'm hurt. You would just be like, yeah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> right. And um, and it took a while to 
get more confidence in myself and my ideas and to realize um, that if, if I don't censor myself, then I'm not, you know, a term that we always say is like building a palace around the one idea that we've shared. But we have a lot of ideas and we don't we don't need to um, feel so hurt every time one of those ideas is. You mean building a palace around the center? You mean there's this central idea? Yeah, this is actually, I th- this came from an interview I heard with, uh, I believe it was Tony Gilroy. Right. And uh, was it, maybe it was even with you, <laughs> about the idea that somebody builds a palace around their one idea. Because they've got one idea and they're going to hold on to it so strongly. But for people that have multiple ideas, you don't, you don't dig oh, in. Oh, I think that was big... in his BAFTA speech. It might have been, did <laughs> you listen to that I, BAFTA speech of his? This was years ago. So and I he was he's... talking about Steven Soderbergh. About how he has lots of ideas. Yes, yes speaking... about mm-hmm. how Steven Soderbergh is such a wonderful producer because he doesn't just have the one idea that he then builds a palace around. He has a lot of ideas and he doesn't need to build palaces. And so when we kind of run up against that in ourselves, we can acknowledge, like, that's the language that we use to acknowledge, oh, have we, are we building a palace around this idea? Yeah, or stop building a palace, you know, and it's like, oh, I know what that means. Yeah, maybe I've built a little bit of a Right, you a mean palace. open up, let yourself um, think about what if this isn't exactly the way to go. Let the idea either become what it needs to or not, but don't try to protect it. Don't put a moat and... Yeah, get yes, out of the box exactly. for a second. Yeah, exactly. And so you find yourselves doing that ne- still... To the conversations, because uh, it's clear that on set, you the way you comport yourselves is so that you create this tranquil and creative environment for the actors and the other techni- technical people to like do their jobs. Because mm-hmm. if you guys were fighting, that that would be impossible if you weren't unified. But now, when you go out in the editing room, you're able to negotiate these uh, these things somehow. Here's what we have learned in that part of the process. That when we used to have these fights in the edit room over, no, it needs to be like this, no, it needs to be like that, they wouldn't end and we wouldn't figure out how to resolve them. Eventually, somebody has to make a choice and we need to see how it plays and move on. I think we learned that if somebody, we know each other really well now to the point where if someone's real willing to take that fight to the next level... You know, whoever, who's willing to take it to the next level is usually going to win. And one of us will relent. We'll say, eh, I don't think that's the fight I want to have right now. And Chief cares a lot about this. I'm going to give her that one and we'll see how it plays out. You know, that sort of thing. And then are you able to come in the next day and just actually like, so if, if Anna's in it, then go do that edit. Are you able to come in the next day and just look at it? Oh, yeah. Objectively. Totally. And you have the faith that he's at, you somehow have the faith that he's then going to look at it objectively, not like thinking, oh, but I wanted to do it my way. Yeah, and I, I people ask, like, what are some fights that he's won or that I've won? And there is nothing in any of our movies that, um, in the end, we didn't both completely 100% agree on. Do you That's feel right. the same way? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think you could do this. Like, Dave and I have been mm-hmm. creative partners for uh, 18 or 19 years. And there's no way you could, first of all, um, even like our, you know, if you saw the thing, I'm sure that if I saw the thing that was entirely every, just exactly the way you, and the thing exactly the way you wanted, they'd be pretty close to the, like mm. a pretty similar movie. The, the differences, which seem huge to in the, in the moment, holding on somebody for 36 frames before you cut to somebody else for the react, like, oh, I'm going to be on Anna for this reaction shot for, I think it should be for 12 frames, but I think it should be for 36 frames. And then the other person going like, dude, the joke just doesn't, listen, the joke plays at, you've got to cut off her face because you see, I don't believe, like, that could be one of the, I mean, you could be arguing over, uh-huh. the right, couldn't you, right. over the difference between 12 and 36 frames? Absolutely. And it can seem crucial. Yeah. 
and you know, and sometimes it is really that sometimes you know that really really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it often matters. But later, it's hard to really. Rem- later, it's clear. I would just say in three days mm-hmm. for us. Three days later, when we watch the show, okay, we made all those decisions and gone through all of it, and then we watch the thing down. We're just watching it and mm-hmm. each making notes, and almost always like that moment, the note that we have will by that time be the same note. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the case for you guys. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the luxury of the edit is that you have all the time in the world in a certain way to come up with the make those decisions and get on the same page. And I guess the hardest decisions to to disagree on in the moment are when you're on set, which is why it's so important. I think to be respectful and quiet and, you know, ha- have those conversations intimately, even when it feels like you're not actually having those conversations at all to the people around you, you know? No, I, yeah, I saw you guys have a couple of them, but, th- and I also saw at one point, Ryan, you saying to Anna, okay, so why don't we get it this way and then we'll go get it the way that you see it. And if you do that quickly enough, nobody knows right. that there are two versions that mm-hmm. are getting shot and it doesn't and it just gives you option it just gives you options same way as single person yeah i i find the momentum means so much in <laughs> in film and tv that we try to just go right into the next take you know and not have a big discussion about oh it needs to move here on this line or needs to Whatever it is with the camera or the performance, we often just, let's go right into another one. And, and then we have a, time. Was that a strategy you came up with ahead of time? We learned that as we went. That definitely we learned that when people are looking around, waiting for you to decide on what to do next, it's often best to just say, hey, let's go again. People start setting up. Then you have time to discuss, if it doesn't go well on take two, what the strategy is for for take three. And then often we find just by doing the take again, both the actors, the actors and the crew will find it and the it cinematographer, the cameraman person will be in the right yeah. spot and all that stuff will then happen. I want to talk a little bit about this castle idea is really interesting and it made me think of so Mississippi Grind, which um, you know, I think has like a ninety seven on Rotten Tomatoes or ninety eight or something like that 89. on Rotten Tomatoes. Eighty nine <laughs> we're sitting at eighty nine right now. That's, that's what absurd I've, that you know that's what that. I've been told. Yeah. That's pathetic, dude. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way, but that is totally pathetic. <laughs> Dave told you, right? Anna told me. How would I know? I don't look at that stuff. <laughs> I tell Dave, and obviously you tell Anna. But um, <laughs> unfortunately. But you told me that you had another movie you were going to make before, you told me, before Mississippi Grind. So making independent films is so hard. You know, I was thinking about another Oakland, uh, Ryan Kugler, who took Fruitvale, which is an incredible movie, one Sunday. You know, had an arc similar to the beginning of your career. Mm-hmm. And then he seems to have made a decision to go make a big movie. And you've, it seems like, stu- resolutely stuck to making, and I know r- it's clear when you see Creed that uh, that is an incredibly personal movie, but it is a movie with grand scope. Mm-hmm. It's great, too, for someone to grow up when I grew up. I mean, it's yeah, just I it. great. <laughs> uh, I could watch it. I could, my son and I went opening night nice. when we just had the best time, you know. And Ryan's a great guy. Have you had him here? No, I, I haven't. He has my favorite accent of anybody. It's the Oakland accent. It's, but his is really spectacular. It is great. I listened to him on Elvis Mitchell twice through just so I could hear. I had a little bit of that growing up, but I've, I've been in New York 18 <laughs> years now, so it's kind of disappeared. Did he really have like the Ryan Coogler level accent? People accused me of being from the South when I first moved to New York, and that's what it is. It has this Southern twang. Yeah, I know I'm you're waiting for Anna. Because <laughs> she's going to say no right now. She didn't know me then. I'd, yeah, you know. She met you second year of college. 
The fifth. Okay, it was subtle. Let's say this. It was subtle. <laughs> yeah, you thought you were hard. Maybe. <laughs> like Oakland hard, but obviously. Okay, wait, let's get back to, so Creed yeah, and Ryan. No, yeah. but to you guys, it seems, you didn't. I think following Half Nelson, you must have had opportunities to go do more Hollywood pictures. or to. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your thought, because it's, as you said, you started by saying those were studio pictures, Goodfellas, Do the Right Thing, the movies that were initially inspiring to you. You wanted a program like a regular theater. But making these movies is so difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, firstly, how you decided to stick to doing that thing and whether you regret that at all or wish you could do it differently. And, and bundled with that, how do you decide what you're going to commit years of your life to trying to get mm-hmm. made? Just, I'll speak very briefly about that. There's this window when you make your first film that's perceived as a success. You get actors who want to meet with you. You get studios who want to meet and they want to hear about what your next story is. We'd already been down the road on Sugar of trying to do the research. And we actually started, I think we may have even had a first draft of the script before Half Nelson had even come out. So we were just excited about telling that specific story which was, by the way, a movie in Spanish with no movie stars that no studio wanted to make. Thankfully, HBO Films stepped up. It's listed as a foreign film in places. (laughs) I saw that today that I was (laughs) looking to watch it on Amazon or Netflix. I hadn't seen it since it came out. A couple of your movies I've seen over and over, but I only saw that movie one time. I was like, oh, I should... And it was like under foreign films. And I I just thought, that is not a foreign film. Well, you do have to read parts of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, yeah, but it's no, yeah, it's but a it's sports not. movie. But it's a, uh, it was this. It just felt like we had this window with this great opportunity to make this movie that we might not ever get a chance to make again. And so we went that route uh, instead of making the big studio Brad Pitt Johnny Depp style movie. Not saying any of those guys were even interested, but I'm just that seemed to be a way we could have taken. But it wasn't even like we were shutting down that route so much as hey, this was the story we were ready to tell. Let's make this one, thinking we would get that opportunity back. Figuring we'd still you mean have that capital that, would still be yeah, we'd sort still of, have that still be accruing that kind of capital. Yeah, we'd still have that Ryan Gosling, hot, you know, all that like hot heat window situation <laughs> happening, which actually was not quite there when we came back around to making our third film. Do I regret it? No, because I the experience of making Sugar was one of the the highlights of my creative career, uh, along with Billions, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, as well it should be. Yeah, but uh, but well, I don't we'll know. Talk I wonder how Anna feels. Yeah, how do you feel about it, Anna? Um, I I think I was a little bit more certain at the time, maybe incorrectly so, that I didn't want to make those kinds of movies. I feel like I had a strong desire to tell small, intimate character-driven stories. And even though I did love those movies, I didn't feel like that's where my heart was in terms of... You mean even though you liked blockbusters? Exactly. Even though I liked big movies, popcorn movies, all kinds, romantic comedies, horror. I, I watched everything. I loved it. I didn't feel like that's what I should be making. And and I think that this is actually maybe where Ryan and I differed at the time. I mean, now I'm much more open to exploring, making different kinds of movies and telling different kinds of stories and excited about the idea of having the opportunity to do that at some point. Partly because six people saw our last film, which is <laughs> the changing nature of, of telling those kinds of stories is people don't go see them in the theater. Well, yeah, so is that, I mean, when you make a film like Mississippi Grind, which, again, it's not just, it's not just me saying, oh, this is a really terrific film, like, that's why I was saying the Rotten Tomatoes thing, and also just anecdotally from people seeing it, I mean, it's, like, just executed incredibly well, the performances are great, 
I mean, you succeeded in completely changing my opinion about one actor. And Ben Mendelsohn is just the, you know, maybe like the best film actor <laughs> imaginable. Um, is it maddening that that movie didn't get more of an audience? By the way, it will. I mean, I know that it will have a huge life. I mean, if you think about a movie like Heart 8, which for me is a great other, everyone always mentions California Split. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I think Heart 8 is equal. I, I think it's, it's terrific, yeah. I think Heart 8, I see there are things about the aspects of your movie that remind me of Heart 8 in the, in the best way. Mm-hmm. Or Sidney, I don't want to be disrespectful. Yes, PTA, yes. Sydney. And thanks for saying that. Yes, it is maddening. I mean, I think it's still raw to us because it's we're still sort of in it. So... I don't want to say too much, but it, it definitely feels like... No, but you can't. I mean, I, I'm, it drives me mad that people haven't seen Solitary Man, our, our movie, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, also has like an 89 in top critics <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and like so few people, you know, because of the podcast, like a lot of people have seen the movie. Who, so many more people have seen it now because uh, I talk into this thing and I get letters like, why didn't I know about this movie? And it drives, I want to rip my hair out. But... That movie is less commercial, but it's there's sort of no hope in it, and it's not really that fun. Though, I mean, you guys will really like. You definitely go see it. You definitely rent it, but um, <laughs> definitely like get the DVD and watch it on Amazon. But, but Mississippi Grind is like really fun movie. Also, it's like a great ride. Say, sorry, say that again. <laughs> it's a great. You just put that ride on the if you want. Like you can blur. It is though a great ride, um, and it did really well at festivals, right? And got was it hard to get it made? It took a little while, but it wasn't as hard to get made as other projects that that we have uh, tried to put together. For instance, the one that I had been telling you about that we tried to get made and never got made right before Mississippi Grind. I mean, you know, from the moment that we put pen to paper to when we were making it was, you know, maybe a year and a half or so. That's I mean, quick for it's it was not a, that. it was the response to this other project, which was a big sweeping sort of epic but intimate character piece that was just gonna be too big for the kind of movies that are being made right now. So we said, Hey, let's just get two guys on the road. We can get that together. We can find a couple of actors who will take that journey with us. And it, it, there were some starts and stops along the way, but, but it wasn't I, I just want to go back one second because it seemed like you were trying to say that you felt like maybe you had held the two of you back by not wanting to make that kind of movie. Do you um, feel that way? No, no, I don't feel that way. I just feel that when Ryan says he was certain that we were going to get another opportunity to make that kind of movie, I don't think that's where my head was at at all. I think that I, I was like, oh, I'm not... Right. At that time, I mean, you weren't, I guess neither of you, or I wonder, were you just happy, like, oh, as long as we get to make movies, like, I don't care about the rest of the stuff. Like, the you know, being considered whatever important directors or getting to work with the biggest movie stars or making enough money to support a family. I like, no, I wonder about, about that. Still, I'm just, because no, yeah. all of us come at this differently. Like, I, I know I regret some of the decisions that Dave and I made had to do with the fact that I had a young child mm-hmm. and right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I've, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have ended up uh, doing this if I didn't have a young, my, my son is, who made me, having the first kid made me make the decision to become an artist. So none of it would have happened but for him. But I also had this sense of responsibility mm-hmm. to use the the fact that I, I could go get Hollywood jobs to go get those Hollywood jobs. And I've often, you know, wondered if we'd made other decisions, what what the different path would have been. That, But you you guys were... Single, no families, like living an artist's life in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that we, was happening. We got paid like ten thousand dollars to make Half Nelson, and we were like, "This is a good chunk of money." Can you believe they're paying us to make this movie? Which I, I think often gets turned around on filmmakers, young filmmakers, because they, everyone is willing to work for free to make their first oh, films. Yeah, well, we yes, I've, 
we worked for free a lot. And also, <laughs> in between the Hollywood jobs, that's what you do. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. 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 Because you're dying to just make the thing. Um, exactly. And and I think that part of that is you know we were really young and we didn't have families and it didn't feel like it was we were super close to having that and you know a lot of the filmmakers who I really respected I remember meeting with uh, Jim McKay this was before he had you know now, now he has a you know a really um, a huge television directing career and has directed some wonderful television shows, but it was before he did that and he didn't have an agent and he was like, he met with us right after Sundance with a Gowanus, our short film that we then based Half Nelson off of and he read our script and we just admired him so much as a filmmaker and he's like, you know, don't get an agent, don't like do the Hollywood thing and I felt... Like, that's who I want to be. I want to be this independent filmmaker. And did you find yourself, like, when you would think, I mean, thinking about Jarmusch and, and Linklater, who took very different paths, those mm-hmm. two guys. Mm-hmm. Did either of those paths resonate more for you, or was it really just... Ma- well, here's the thing. I don't... See, I never shut down the studio thing. And just like Soderbergh or Linklater, I'm looking forward to the day of making one of those School of Rock-type movies or Oceans movies that you've actually been a part of. Uh, those seem fun to me. Those seem like those would be not not just lucrative, good for my career in terms of like uh, my being able to to live for a few years off of that that money. But I think creatively that would be really fulfilling as well because we haven't had that experience yet, and I would like to to have. One. So how have you tried to do? Have you tried to go do that now? Have you like gone around to the studios and because you have to? I mean, Soderbergh yeah. tells the story in one of his books about. I mean, he's told it. He's told it a lot, you know, about having a fight to get out of sight. Mm-hmm. Right, right. We started that whole thing. Right. Yeah. yeah no, we have. You gone and fought for we're jobs? on the verge. We are about to start that process. So <laughs> let's check back in in eighteen months and see how it goes. And we've, you know, in terms of just reading things and thinking about what what kinds of movies in that vein we'd like to make. It's maybe we're a little bit slow to like fully connect with something. We want to be super passionate about it. So we haven't just jumped into something like that yet we, and out of sight. We haven't found that thing that we can, you know, lock into and know that this this can be a big movie, a studio movie, but it's also going to be something. You can find your little secret movie in it that you want to make. Exactly. Yeah, you need that, so, right? So that's so what we're looking for. Has this Is this part of why you're directing television? Because it's a way to dip your toe in the water of working in somebody else's? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and TV's so good now. I mean, 10 years ago, you'd be embarrassed to be working in television. And now the storytelling is fantastic. I mean, your show I mean, I mean, it's just one example. But you've directed a, a few episodes, four episodes of The Affair, I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. And I know you've done other a bunch of other television, mm-hmm. too. And you... you you both like it? You like doing it too? Yeah, it's an experience-by-experience experience basis, but it's a good experience to have even when it's not a great experience. <laughs> but, um, you know... Well, what's I, the biggest challenge of it? What makes it... Don't name names, but what makes something not a good experience as a TV director on a premium kind of show? I mean, it's exactly what you said. You're you're jumping into somebody else's... Uh, I don't... Did you say pond? I tried not to use any of the sort of old cliche. I didn't say sandbox. I knew I didn't say <laughs> sandbox on purpose. Okay. I think you said pond. I don't think I said anything. I stopped. Oh, okay. I think you filled it in. All right. I just went like somebody else's and I waved my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great to do in an audio medium. Someone else's fairy dust. <laughs> Wonderful. In at... any case, in somebody else's blank, yeah. um, you're, you're you're joining somebody else's sandbox or pond or lake or whatever. It's, their it's vision. Weird. It's weird to insert yourself into someone else's vision and be in service to that vision. Uh, it's weird, but also I think 
fun because we can just jump onto that vision and jump right back out of it and onto the next one. So I think that's part of what's appealing about. So the what makes it hard, though? It, well, it depends <laughs> how how um, how much your vision kind of can work within that other person's vision. Um, how much kind of freedom and trust you're given. What the vibe is just. Uh, the set vibe is not no longer completely controlled by you on a movie. It's right. it's your set's vibe that you set in a lot of ways. Um, and this is set by a whole lot of other people who came before you. And is it a comfortable working environment? Right. We're we're jumping into episode eleven of twelve on your set. Right. Now if that if if the previous ten episodes had not been a, had been misery. Right. We would have I mean we can sense that. You jump on and you say, Oh my god, like everyone here is miserable. They're all frightened <laughs> Get or they're me all out of here. Yeah. Something. Why is everybody which, so terrified? Which is terrified. absolutely not the case on, on your set. I mean, it was so clear that everybody felt like they were well respected and given freedom to be creative and excited about what they were doing and it makes it an extremely lovely place to to find yourself every day. Well, a lot of that had to do with, uh, like, why you guys would feel that way. First of all, our crew is awesome and our actors. You know, when you have, like, number one through all the regulars are there to really do this, it just, none of them feel like they're cashing a check. Mm -hmm. They're all passionate about it. That's enormously helpful. But also, David and I were rigorous in hiring directors that we'd like to trust it. Mm-hmm. Which would be like so that we could say to you, I mean, I know there was only one shot the entire time where I was like, oh, I don't think you guys should do it this way. Mm-hmm. Here's why. Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, we can all know there was one thing. Mm-hmm. That's because I was just like, oh, whatever they do is going to be great. We would watch the day. You know, it was for us like uh, just a, gr- a great experience. Um, but do, do you feel like it's I, – I, but I, I did a couple times wonder sort of like why when you make such distinctive, specific movies and you're still – in the prime of your filmmaking career, even if it's, like, not financially lucrative because of the movie wasn't... Like, why you wouldn't really be putting all your energies into making the next... Like, I want you to direct an episode next season if there is one and all that stuff, but but I wonder whether it's some other version of hiding. Like, it's still a kind of hiding or something. Because it's so... it's There is a safety in it. But the thing I said at the beginning about it, your movies have so much love for film in them. I mean, you really... You watch Mississippi Grind and you feel all the movies you guys were watching and in every frame is drenched with this specific point of view from the music to the wardrobe to like the exact way that the picture that somebody frame that somebody breaks is hung or standing sitting there and the what he does with it like each thing there's like this specificity of vision that you can never have when you're making somebody else's show it's true that you can't have the specificity of vision that you have when you're making your own movie but I actually find it a lot more scary and vulnerable to be on somebody else's set, frankly, than to be on my own. I think that you're kind of opened up in a different way in trying to achieve somebody else's vision or help, you know, service somebody else's You're saying it helps you stretch, you think? Yeah, you also get to, I mean, that's, that is interesting, maybe even more interesting what I'm going to say is, but you get to use the toys. Like we, on your indie <laughs> film, you don't have access to all the toys that you have on a show like yours or on a show like The Affair. And it's, it's, it's fun to play with those toys and, and keep experimenting with the technology, the tools of storytelling, the tools of filmmaking. Right, like the way some people use commercials to do that. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the Tony Scott would always talk about in interviews, getting to go do all that stuff on these commercials that he could then bring into the films. Right, right. But when you say the next 18 months, you're thinking about how, are you going to write a Hollywood kind of a movie? Do you think, do you have an idea? Do you still write every day together? 
No, we don't write as much as we should. What are you gonna, how yeah. are you gonna, yeah, we don't write as much as we should. We really are, um, gosh, I'm going to say I'm lazy, but I'm going to admit that I'm lazy. I you feeling that? You're feeling you're going through like a lazy period with the writing? Yeah, Anna has a baby, so she's lazy. And I'm, <laughs> I've used it as my excuse. Do you write in the same room usually? We go through the, basically the beats of the beginning of the story. We'll do like vague beats for the outline of the whole thing and then sort of a scene-by-scene outline for the beginning and then we'll separate. Although I feel like now that I have a baby at home and it's harder for me to work from there and we just, uh, starting in January, we have an office together for the first time, I feel like that will be a really good place to go to every day and try to get back into the rhythm of writing every day. Resolution. I like that. Do you feel helped or hindered by the decision to stay in New York, not live in L.A.? Hmm, that's, that's interesting. I mean, helped for me. I can't. I'm not an L.A. person. I like going to visit. I, I actually don't mind it. I used to hate it. I like it now, but I don't really want to live there. I love New York. Yeah, I love living here. Um, if you want, I mean, Linklater never did, I don't think, but all these other people did sort of who made ho- the Hollywood tradition spent periods of time where they went and lived there, you know, if you really wanted to make those movies. But how are you thinking about, when you think about it, how do you think about it, Anna, like the idea of trying to go do one of those bigger films. Do you feel like you're going to write it or you want to go and get in rooms and convince people to give you one of those scripts? I think that it, it's uh, started out by just reading more scripts, trying to actually read things that people, that our agent sends us <laughs> for a change. I, I feel like that might be how we find our way into something um, because we don't have the idea of the thing that we want to do. I mean, do you find yourself, I sense from Ryan that he's a little bit, I do sense from you a little discouraged by sort of like the state of independent film. Yeah. Um, Scott Rosenberg was talking about this a little bit, but I, for me, I view it slightly differently. Like, I just, I look at your career and I think, oh, they've gotten to make all these movies exactly the way that they've wanted to. It's incredible. I think it's, it's the kind of thing that like later someone would look back and go like, ah, it's, they're like living a French new wave kind of existence. Of course, living, it's hard. I can see that it's like <laughs> well, that actually so doing it. I mean, it that is. You're making exactly the movies you want to make with no compromises, no creative compromises. Mm-hmm. Yet I can see, see in you this like frustrated. I mean, are you frustrated by it now? I am frustrated by it, but I look back at all the movies that we made and the experience of making them. And it, it took, you know, a few years because to, to make Mississippi Grind, our last film. And... I was frustrated. I was going home to my husband every night, you know, as we were trying to get that movie off the ground, being like, I just can't do this. This is my least favorite part of filmmaking, and it feels like it's more of the process than anything else. And I was complaining to all my friends about it. I'm like, maybe I should open a B&B in Hudson Valley. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we got on set, or we got down to New Orleans and started prep, and I felt so happy. I felt so exactly where I wanted to be, doing exactly what I wanted to be doing, so confident in what we were doing and the people who we'd chosen to work with. And I felt in those moments like it's worth it. But then you finish and then you spend a year releasing it and then nine people see it and then <laughs> and then you've got to start raising money for your next project. And it's in those like lulls that you start wondering, is it really worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Somehow you have to go back to, like, original principles or something and remind yourself why. And you know what? Being on sets helps. And and that's the other reason that we like directing television. Because when we have a good positive experience on set, it's like, oh, yeah, all right. I yeah, like this, this. Can, I like making stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. With, I completely understand that. Like for me and, and Dave, I think every time that the production office is actually open and you walk in and people start filling those jazz. Totally. I know exactly <laughs> that feeling. Yeah, it's just like, oh, we're we're getting to do this thing and 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 we're actually getting to live this dream and then you can forget about all the impossible, you know, and the rhythm of it. The production designer shows up and that person's all everyone wants to talk about and talk to. Then the cinematographer shows up and no one ever talks to the production designer again. He's miserable. <laughs> she is. But those rhythms are, yeah. um, I don't know, they're very alluring. Yeah. Location scouting. I mean, just getting in a van and, and finding the spot where you're like, oh, yeah, this is the shot. This is the place. This is where I can see the scene starting to come together. I mean, it's just a fun part of the process. Well, what's it feel like to to be starting a television show that, that you open a production office and you're like, this could be my production office for years? Well, you know... Um, because David and I got to a similar a similar place of frustration with a part of the movie business, different, slightly differently, but had had such a bad experience working on Runner Runner, and really felt discouraged about the kind of things you have to do to get certain kinds of movies made and the compromises that come along, come with that. And then the movie was so bad, and we knew that it was bad from at every step of the way, and couldn't fix it, and couldn't change it, and that started as a pitch, and we'd had the experience with it. Uh, pitching TV shows and getting deals for them and doing it, with, uh, writing it as you guys did, writing it on spec, writing billions on spec, and then knowing, okay, we're going to risk that, but the reward is going to be that if we get to go make it, we can make the show we want to make. And, you know, in our heads the whole time was we're going to cast exactly who we want to cast because like, we, we were going to, like, be at a, a network. Since we wrote it on spec, we controlled it. We were only going to go to a network that we felt really understood the show that we wanted to make, which mm-hmm. would then let us... Mm-hmm cast it because we'd all see these parts the same way and then we were able to hire exactly who we wanted in every position all the directors so now the only thing is I hope more than seven people see it it'll be heartbreaking <laughs> for me if people don't watch it right if enough people don't no, watch it no you're already it, there I mean it's just a, a different it's a different landscape it's not you're not releasing an indie film on one screen you know you're on Showtime I mean this is you're gonna be on buses you're on billboards this is a big deal well that stuff happens but but I but part of it is you know I know that like a show finds it's like I'm really happy the pilot people already really like it. That's great. But I know that it gets better and better and better. And so I really want people to keep watching. I know that as the show gets the third, fourth, fifth, sixth episode, it really like becomes something special. So look, we all find stuff to worry about, right? (laughs) I mean, that's part of this life, Anna, is that we don't, we know that it can, it's such a dream existence in a way. We feel like it's precarious. Mm -hmm. I mean, but are you, are you able to look at each other and know that you're in the firmament of this now, that you can do this thing, that you're... We have to remind ourselves. We have moments where we get frustrated and we wonder what we're doing and what we're going to do next and is it is it worth it, like Anna just said, and we kind of just have to step outside of that and say, hey, remember that time we did this thing? That was pretty badass. Like, who does that? Like, we, we pulled that off. How did that happen? And and it, it gives makes us smile and realize that we want that feeling again. Yeah, we need each other. That's the best place to end. I mean, we need each other uh, is perfect. And we as film uh, audience need you. Well, I mean, not to be all James Lipton and horrible, but um, we we need, we as the film going audience need Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden to do what they do and no one else can do but them. No, but we do. We need you guys to do your thing because... Um, I can really count, like, the movie-going experiences that have shaken me the way uh, Half Nelson did uh, and um, and the fact that you've kept it up and that I know I'm going to watch Mississippi Grind ten times is uh, why you got to 
you have to keep going and um, go make your next film. And thank you for doing this. Thanks thank so much you. for having us. This is great. You can find Ryan on Twitter at... Oh, what am I? What are you? I don't know. Fleck Ryan one Oh yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's but you weird, can yeah. but you can find I'm it. I'm still new to this thing. I don't quite get it. He's on there. Also, you can just tweet at me at Brian Koppelman, and I'll point you to him. Anna, you're not on the social media that much. You're not on the Twitter. I'm not on the Twitter. Maybe one day. So you can't find her there, but you can go and find a way to purchase Mississippi Grind. Can people get that on iTunes? Yeah. iTunes and Amazon, I think. And on on demand on some on demand systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no justice. If there were justice, Ben would get an Academy Award nomination. It looks unlikely at this point, but I'm rooting hard. <laughs> I'm rooting hard for it. All right, thanks for doing this, guys. Yeah.